Well, good morning, everyone. Anyone have a, a mother, or maybe you are that mother, where you really become the mother to all of the kids in the neighborhood? Anybody? Anybody have that mother? Anybody was that mother? It's just like, if you're, if you're in the neighborhood, you're a neighbor kid, you're part of the family. Well, there's, this is a true story about a mother who would become that mother. And when you become that mother, there are things that happen that you don't always anticipate happening. There's a certain level of risk in being the mother to all the neighbor kids. So this one day, this mother goes into her son's room expecting to find who? Her son. He's not there. One of the neighbor kids is there. And he's standing on top of the dresser. And he has a metal hanger straightened out like this. And he's getting ready to go spear fishing in the fish tank. And all he's wearing is his underwear. Because he's afraid of getting wet. It's dangerous being the mom of neighbor kids, right? That's an experience to go into your kid's room and find another kid standing there in his underwear spear fishing in your fish tank. I mean, at least it wasn't the dining room table, but still. This is why Carl Sandburg, the uh, poet from Galesburg, wrote, Love your neighbor, but don't take down your fences. It gets dangerous, right, when we start loving people? It's, loving people is easy until it's not. All of us have had an experience at some point if we've taken the risk of loving somebody, of getting hurt by somebody. That's how we get hurt, is when we take that risk. Now, we know, everyone in this room knows, that America has a neighbor problem. Our neighborhoods are no longer front porch neighborhoods, they're backyard neighborhoods. We're no longer chain link fence, we're privacy fence. The whole dynamic has changed. It's increasingly more and more common for people to not even know the name of their neighbors. It's more and more common for people to be able to live in isolation. Before the pandemic, in London, there was 30,000 people that had gone over 30 days without interacting with a single person because they could work online, they could shop online, they could order their food online, and they could do all their socializing online. The world has a neighbor problem. But it makes sense though, right? I mean, it hurts to get hurt. It's dangerous to love people. Yet I think that's exactly what God's calling us to do. I think God's calling us to take this risk of loving others. And so I want to continue this series through the parables and invite you to open up to the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a, a copy of the scriptures, open up with me to Luke 10 verse 25 through 37, verse 25 through 37. This parable here is known as the Samaritan parable. There is no other parable that continues to inform the Western conscience to the degree that this parable does. If you Google modern-day Good Samaritan, the story pops up everywhere. I mean, think about it. We live in a post-Christian society, but yet this parable continues to influence the world around us. Now, the stakes are high. Let me tell you a story that just happened this past winter 
that represents the depth of depravity that's come in, in neighborhood relationships. In Pennsylvania, there was a couple that every time they cleared their sidewalk and cleared their driveway, they would throw their snow into the neighbor's yard. Frustrating, right? Annoying, probably. Well, the neighbor started taking it really, really personable. And so he'd come out and he'd have these altercations. And these people were belligerent. They'd be swearing at each other and carrying on. And on this one particular day, and all of this is caught on film, the guy comes out to stop them from throwing snow in his yard. And the wife and the husband both start swearing at him. And he says that he's going to kill them. And they say, do it. And he goes in his house and he gets a gun and he shoots them. And he kills them. In Philadelphia. Think about that. In a world that thinks we're so far removed from barbarian behavior that we've progressed so far, neighbors across the street, this happens in America, of all places, in a middle class, which should be a safe neighborhood. This happens. When things like this take place, we realize the depth of the danger that's involved in loving our neighbor. Max is much better at reading the scriptures than me. It's, it's very engaging. I'll try to do my best. Follow along with me in Luke 10. We'll read the first couple passages together. Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you probably recognize this passage. This is very similar discussion as to what happens in Matthew and Mark, where a lawyer, an expert in the law, asks Jesus what the greatest commandments are. He is trying to test Jesus. This is a separate situation where it seems like this lawyer is asking a genuine question. He's really trying to ask Jesus, what is the most important commandment? How do I inherit eternal life? Would anybody say that this is a really important question? How do I inherit eternal life? How do I know that I'm saved? He asks this question, and Jesus says, well, what do you think? You're the expert in the law. And he gives the same answer that Jesus would give. He goes back to the Torah. He gives him Deuteronomy. He gives him Leviticus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Go and do likewise. Now, for some people, this is a stumbling point. Because when they hear Jesus say that if you love God and love your neighbor, that's how you achieve salvation, it almost sounds like it's driven by behavior, right? That it's almost good acts Based, But think about this. Jesus knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is impossible to love God with all of that you are apart from faith in him. Does that make sense? It is impossible to love God with all that you are and not believe in Jesus. That's impossible. Can't do it. Jesus knows that. The lawyer doesn't know it yet, but Jesus knows it. Now, 
Look what happens next. Verse 29. But he, this is the lawyer, desiring to justify to himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now notice, in this second question that the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor, the author, Luke, gives us his intent. His intent is to what? To justify himself. If the goal is to inherit eternal life and he has to love God with all that he is and love his neighbor as himself, and Jesus has just told him, you got it, go do it. Well, this is a pretty tall order depending on who the neighbor is, right? If the neighbor is somebody who is somebody I like, well, that's easy. But what if the neighbor is somebody I don't like? Well, now this is much harder to inherit eternal life. And so the lawyer wants to think that he's a good person. The lawyer wants to think that he's squared away with God and that he's okay. The lawyer wants to think that he's doing everything that he's supposed to do according to the law of God. And so to justify himself, he says, who's my neighbor? Hoping that Jesus would give him an out. And Jesus gives him a story instead. He gives him a story. Now, this story can be a little bit tame sometimes. But there was a Sunday school teacher who was really trying to engage her preschoolers. And so she gave them all the gory details. And she talked about how the robbers came and they beat the man to a pulp and you could barely recognize him and there was blood everywhere. And she looked at her preschoolers and she said, what would you do? And all the preschoolers were just kind of stunned looking at her. And one of them said, I'd throw up. It's gross. Now, there's some historical context that's needed here. Now, Jerusalem, Jericho, real cities, real cities you can go visit today, real cities that go along a very rocky, barren path. It's a 17-mile journey. still the same way today. Jerusalem's high up, elevated. Jericho's low. It's down near the Dead Sea. So you're going downhill. And along this craggly, rocky plain, there's no trees, there's no grass, there's just rocks and dust and hot air. That's it. And what would happen is, is because people would take these pilgrimages to Jerusalem when they were leaving Jerusalem, and this is one of the most common paths, especially if you're traveling from up north, that you would take these routes. Now, most of the time, people traveled in large caravans and nothing would happen to them. But in Jesus' story, he's talking about one guy traveling alone, and he is ripe for the picking. And he gets hijacked. He gets robbed. He gets mugged. He gets beat up. Now, 
In first century Israel, if you said somebody was walking by themselves from Jerusalem to Jericho, this is a believable story. This is like if I was telling you a story and somebody went to Rome or to Paris and they got pickpocketed because those are one of the top five places people get pickpocketed in the world. So this is not a far-fetched story. This is very much based in reality. Because all of these rocky areas with these cliffs and with these caves, there's plenty of places for people to hide and to jump out and to surprise somebody. So this guy gets beat up. And then Jesus gives these two other religious people coming by. People who were serving in the temple, a priest, their job is to take care of the sacrifices. They would be the ones that would actually pour out the drink offering or who would wave the leaves at the leaf offering or who would put the animals on the burning pit. It was their job. The Levites were there to help. They were there to assist. They would help uh, bleed the animals out. They would help repair the, tab the temple if it was broken down. And so here's these two religious people. They both go down after they're done with their job, and they see this guy on the side of the road, and they just keep going. They just keep going. Anybody ever seen somebody on the side of the road stalled out, and you just keep going? Yeah? Maybe you did this morning. They just keep going. Now he gives this plot twist, though. He says a Samaritan stops. Now, a Samaritan is this group of people, oftentimes it's oversimplified by preachers, it's just somebody who is half Jewish, half Gentile, and that Jewish people and Samaritans hated each other. Samaritans are much more complicated than that. Their history is much more richer than that. And actually, most Jewish people never actually condemned them as not being Jewish. But what Samaritans did do is they didn't think worship happened in Jerusalem. They thought worship happened on Mount Gerizim, which is just north of where they're at. And during different periods of time, there's different levels of tension. In the first century, there was a lot of tension between Israelites and Samaritans. And in fact, you can go to the West Bank today, you can go on top of Mount Gerizim, and there's still Samaritans there today. Did you know that? This is still a, a people group that's still there. They still celebrate Passover. You can go into their park. They have a sheep pen there with these lambs that they keep in there, and they have what looks like a basketball court of bleachers, and people line up on Passover and watch them take the lambs out and bleed them out and put them on these gigantic forks and burn them right there. Just I mean, it's Passover, and it's happening in real life right now today. Did you know that? Samaritans, this is not some make-believe people. You can go hang out with Samaritans. The scriptures are based in reality. It's not making people up. The Samaritan, the last person that the lawyer is expecting to show up in the story, shows up in the story, and he stops. And he takes oil and wine to cleanse his wounds. Wine in the first century is going to help kill any bacteria. The oil is going to be like soothing ointment to it. And then it says that he puts them on an animal and he takes them to an inn. This is a hotel. And he pays for the guy to stay there. And he pays for whatever else is going to be needed. Think about this. In the story that Jesus is telling, it would have been enough just to bandage his wounds. It would have been enough just to get him to civilization. But this guy goes above and beyond and demonstrates love beyond love. 
It requires sacrifice of resources, sacrifice of time, sacrifice of money, and sacrifice of safety. Now, Jesus finishes telling this story. Look what he says. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now think about that. The lawyer can't even say the word Samaritan, right? He can't even say back to Jesus, Samaritan. He has to say, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, bingo, you got it. Go and do likewise. And the call that is placed on the believers in Jesus Christ's life who are going to obey what Jesus taught is to go and to do likewise, to go and to show mercy, to go and to show compassion. And not simple compassion, but extravagant compassion, right? The kind of compassion that costs us something. Regardless of whether or not it involves hurt, we're still called to go and do it. So how in the world do you and I go and take this risk of showing generous compassion? Well, we have to be mindful of who Jesus is, that God, who is willing to leave eternity in heaven and enter into flesh, and that he would go and be arrested that he would go and have his clothes stripped off of him, that he would go and be stricken and beat and have the flesh tore away from his bones, that he would go and have his hands and his feet nailed to a cross, hung there, stripped for people to walk by and to mock him. Think about that. If Gandhi or Mohammed or someone else tells you to go and do likewise, to go and show extravagant compassion. Well, it's like, okay, it's a good suggestion, but when God comes in the flesh and is willing to show us extravagant compassion to the point where he's going to die on the cross, not for his sins, but for our sins, now that's somebody that we can follow. That's someone we can look at and go, yes, I can go and show extravagant love. I can go and show extravagant compassion because it's been modeled for me. This is not good advice. This is not a good teacher. This is God himself who's willing to go above and beyond what any of us could ever do. Above and beyond what any of us could ever imagine. So practically, what does this look like? One, to be a good Samaritan, to show compassion, you don't have to go volunteer. You don't have to go start an organization. You just have to start somewhere. But God might call, God might call you to do something more. You don't have to go do that, but God might call you to do that. Deal Moody had Isaiah 6, 8 written. And he said, also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And this is what... D.L. Moody wrote next to that verse. I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What can I do? I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. So let me ask you today, what is God calling you to do? Is there a place, is there a person 
Is there an idea? Is there a dream that God has placed inside of you that's so much bigger than who you are? That's so much more overwhelming than what you could do in your own strength? That doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's bad. God's waiting on world changers. God's waiting on people who take him at his word that we are to go and do likewise. D.L. Moody started schools and printing presses and preached the gospel all over the world. He didn't have a college education. He was a failed businessman, but he was faithful to God. And what he believed was is that if the world saw a man fully yielded to Christ, he would change the world. So will you go and do likewise? Two, we've got to be aware of where we're at. So often, we don't have to go and volunteer. We just have to have our eyes open to where we're at. We just have to look around. I mean, think about this. In Jesus' story, was the Samaritan sitting at home and going, you know what? I should go take a stroll between Jericho and Jerusalem. I bet someone had the tar beat out of them. Let me go get some oil. I'm ready to go. No. He's just along the road. He's just along the road. And the opportunity's there, and he takes it. There's a story about a man in 2007, this gentleman named Wesley. He was 50 years old. He was a construction worker. And he was taking his two daughters to school on the subway. And while he's waiting for a train, a fellow passenger who was also waiting for the train... Had a, had a seizure, and he fell off of the platform onto the tracks, and there was a train coming. Can you imagine that? This 50-year-old man, construction worker, standing there with his two daughters, he leaped off the platform got a hold of this man. It was too late to throw him back onto the platform. And so all he could do was grab hold of him and push him down as tightly to the ground as he possibly could as that train cleared over them. In the moment of hysteria as it passed, he told the onlookers to calm his two daughters down, and they waited there until someone was able to come and cut the electricity to the to the tracks, and they got the man out of there. He set out to take his daughters to school. That's it. But when the Lord brings the moment before you, don't you dare pass it by. God, in his infinite wisdom and power, is orchestrating the world in which his servants can serve him, in which his servants can go and to serve others. And we have to open our eyes and we have to be aware of this. So often we get this tunnel vision of what we need to do, of what we need to accomplish, and we miss out on all of these opportunities and we go, God, why won't you do something with me? And God's going, why won't you do something? Why won't you do something? It's here. Finally this. Loving People, loving your neighbor will always require risk. 
It's always going to require risk. It's always a chance that things may not play out the way that you want them to. There's a young man, Division I athlete, his sophomore year, there's this booth set up on his campus for people to get swapped to see if they're a match for bone marrow transplants. And so a couple of his friends were doing it, and he said, well, why would I do this? And he says, well, basically, you know, one out of every couple million people uh, are a match to do this, and so then they donate their bone marrow transplant and, and they help save people's lives. And the guy said, well, what's the chance that this is going to happen? And they said, it's not going to happen. We swab people all the time. Nothing ever happens. So, okay. So he gets his cheek swapped. Doesn't think about it again. His senior year, Division I, track and field, college athlete, just days before his conference meet, the culmination of his athletic season, and he gets a call that there's a gentleman who's 28, 29 years old and who is in need of a bone marrow transplant ASAP, as soon as possible. It's the only way he's going to live. And this kid was a perfect match. He was a perfect match. So he had a decision to make. I mean, all he did was get his cheek swabbed. This guy's a complete stranger. He doesn't know him. Most of the time when you do bone marrow transplants, it's with somebody that you're related to. This guy's a complete stranger. His entire athletic career is days away from culmination, and he has to decide what is he going to do. For him, it was a no-brainer. It was a no-brainer. Cameron Lyle is the guy's name. He went... He double-checked his bone marrow was a perfect match. Most of the time, most of the time, you can just give blood. It's pretty straightforward, and they can do it that way. Once in a while, you have to take a needle, a very long needle. You have to go into the hip bone, and you have to draw out that bone marrow. Usually it's about a liter. Cameron did not qualify for the first option. It wasn't going to be enough. He had to do the second option. The other guy needed so much bone marrow that the normal amount wouldn't work. It needed to be two liters, twice the amount. And so that guy sat on this table with a needle in the hip bone for over two hours getting this bone marrow taken from him. He wasn't allowed to lift anything heavy for 30 days. He missed his conference. It saved that man's life. That bone marrow transplant worked. Was there risk involved? Yeah, there was risk involved. But think about that risk. If we really weigh things in light of eternity, four years of physical effort or two hours of pain to give somebody life maybe a year, maybe decades, what's it really worth, right? What's it really worth? Cameron is an example of someone who went and did likewise. He went and he showed compassion. And so Rock Church, 
This is what I want to ask you. What's God calling you to? Are your eyes open to the here and now? Are you willing to take the risk? Because that is what's required if we're going to be a good neighbor. That's what's required if we're going to look out across this world and love one another. That's what it's going to take if you and I are talking about God coming in the flesh, a Jewish rabbi who was nailed to the cross and raised from the grave being the hope of the world, right? That's what it's going to take is you and I being fully usable by God. Are you willing to be used by God? Are you willing to take the risk of loving your neighbor as yourself? If you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and raised from the grave, I got good news for you. He's put his Holy Spirit in you, so you got everything you need. There's nothing else you need. You got it. Now, are you willing, as Becky said, to go like this? I'm yours, God. I'm yours. Pray with me. Father, I'm asking that your spirit would move right now. That the men and the women of Rock Church would honor your word, that they would obey your word, that, Lord, they would go out from this place, Lord, and that they would love their neighbor, that, Lord, that we would be willing to obey, that we'd be willing to have eyes to see and ears to hear, that, Lord, we'd be willing to take the risk, and, Lord, that we would know in light of eternity, in light of the cross and the resurrection, that, Lord, in ultimate truth it's not that big of a risk and Lord I pray that even in this day that even today that there would be a testimony of a man or a woman a student, a child obeying you Lord and loving someone with great compassion and Lord, I pray that this would be seeds of the gospel planted all throughout the Quad Cities in every neighborhood, in every business, in every shop, Lord, in every household, that, Lord, that this would be a fruitful season, that this would be a season of gospel multiplication, that, Lord, that there would be people coming to faith, that there would be people discipled, and that, Lord, there would be a great revival that would take place from the result of people being obedient your word, trusting you at your word, going and do likewise. We pray this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.